This is an ABC podcast. Norman, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me if you were back at the gym, I would have at least $10. Certainly not enough to pay my monthly membership. <laughs> so are you? No, I'm not actually yet. I think if this peak goes by and I might think about it in the next month or so. I'm really a bit pissed off with my gym actually. I supposedly have suspended my membership and they keep on charging me. Sounds like a gym to me. Well, Esther says she bases all her indoor group exercise decisions on your advice. What a weight to carry on your shoulders. I, well, it is a weight to carry on your shoulders. It's about 10 kilos and uh, <laughs> doing squats at the same time. So you know, keep going. Who needs a gym membership when you've got the expectations of Australia weighing on you? I feel it every time I do a squat. <laughs> well, of course, this is CoronaCast. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and squatter Dr Norman Swan. <laughs> it's Wednesday the 9th of February 2022. So Norman, I feel like we're often hearing about the hidden pandemic behind this pandemic and maybe it's a pandemic of depression or it's a pandemic of loneliness and all of those things are really valid. But this week, Norman, there has been a paper released in the very prestigious journal Nature Medicine and it's about a really worrying pandemic that might follow coronavirus and that's heart issues. Yeah, it's a really big study uh, in the Veterans Administration of the United States where they're looking at people in hospital, out of hospital, just their general health. And they've got really good data. And what I'll give the results first, and then we'll talk about how they did the study. What they showed in the 12 months follow-up after uh, having had COVID-19 infection, whether they were hospitalized or not, and we'll come back to the risk factors for getting this, increased risk of stroke, abnormal rhythm, so things like atrial fibrillation, even the more dangerous form of arrhythmia, which is ventricular arrhythmias, and they can lead to cardiac arrest, but they did show increased risk of cardiac arrest. Angina, that's chest pain on exertion, heart attacks, pericarditis, that's inflammation of the surface of the heart, myocarditis, inflammation of the muscle, it was actually pretty high for risk for myocarditis, heart failure, and blood clots such as pulmonary embolism. That's a really scary sounding list. It is a scary sounding risk, and the risk increase is actually quite significant in many people. And it's evident even in those who were not hospitalised for their COVID-19 originally. Who's most at risk? Well, let me just describe the study to you because just so that people see the credibility. So it's called a case control study, which means that you take people who've had COVID and follow them through, and then you compare them to as many similar people as you can possibly find. And because this is the Veterans Administration, they've got lots of people they can call upon here or the records they can pull, pull down. So it's about 154,000, just under 154,000 people with COVID-19 compared to 10 million controls. So this is really a huge study. And what they did was they looked at age and race, so age and race did not make a big difference to whether or not you got coronary disease post, um, you know, in 12 months following the COVID-19, whether you were under 65 or over 65, whether you were black or whether you were white. Males a bit more than females. Obesity was a risk, as was diabetes. Smoking, not as much of a risk, really, as a background risk as possible, possibly because there weren't that many smokers. Cholesterol was certainly a risk. And obviously, if you'd had pre-existing heart disease, that was a risk of having more serious heart disease a year later. And severity of your disease. So there's no question that if you had a severe bout of COVID and you're required to be in hospital or in ICU, you were much more likely to develop coronary heart disease, problems with cardiovascular disease a year later. But there were certainly cases amongst people who were not in hospital. So what about vaccination status? Did they look at this or is it just assumed that if you are vaccinated, you're less likely to have 
to get COVID at all and less likely to have severe disease. So you're less likely to have these, they call them sequelae, these ongoing effects after the, um, the acute condition. I didn't see vaccination mentioned in the paper. And I think this, because it's, uh, they've rolled them up for a year and it's required, a lot of these people would have been in the pre-vaccination stage of the disease. So is the upshot of this that it's not just about uh, vaccinating people, it's also controlling case numbers because when you have cases, you don't have the chance of this group of people who might go on to have these long-term effects? Yeah, it's it's like people now are saying, well, it's just like the flu now because Omicron's mild. Well, any listener to Chronicast knows it's not mild. You do get sequelae with the flu, by the way, but not like this. This is um, this is a very significantly increased risk. Heart failure is just something that's an appalling thing to get and really is life-limiting and it's certainly lifestyle-limiting. It just shows how toxic this virus actually is and how we've got to prevent it. And given that severity was a major risk factor for getting heart disease a year later, then vaccination will certainly help. So if someone's had COVID in the last 12 months, what's their increased risk of heart disease? On average, and this is for this study compared to 10 million people out there in the community, it was about double the risk. But some things were really very high risk, such such as the myocarditis. But on average, two or three times the risk. Now, if you had some of those risk factors that I was mentioning, such as obesity, diabetes, previous heart disease, or you had a really severe bout of COVID-19, that increased risk would be much higher because that two to three times is just an average. So that's two or three times more than the risk that you would have as a general person in the population of having a heart disease because people have heart disease even if they haven't had COVID. That's right, and it's significant. So another piece of big news that we've heard this week, Norman, is that international tourists are allowed to come back into Australia from the end of this month. What difference is that going to make to Australia's risk of COVID considering that there's already a lot of people who can now come and go? Well, not only is there a lot of people who can come and go, there's a lot of people who've got Omicron and the numbers of cases of Omicron in the community will be overwhelming compared to at least the initial flow of tourists coming into Australia. Um, They're coming in vaccinated, at least with double dose, which means they're not going to be a burden on the healthcare system, um, which is good. The main risk in the future will be that it's more likely that new variants that occur overseas will be brought into Australia sooner than otherwise, but they're, they're always going to arrive anyway. Speaking of um, systems under burden, we've heard a lot in the last few weeks about the aged care system and how it really doesn't seem to be coping with the pandemic. Is the military going in to sort of lend a hand going to be enough? And is it just about the pandemic or is there more at play? The issue with aged care is that it was a system that was under stress pre-COVID and there was an aged care royal commission, problems with workforce, problems with salaries and training and so on. And with any pandemic throughout thousands of years, whenever you've got cracks in the system, no matter what system you're talking about, the pandemic exposes it. And it's really exposed the crack in the aged care system. So it's great that the army is going in, but they're not going in in numbers that are going to replace the over 100,000 shifts that are not being filled every day at the moment. One of the things that you can learn from a pandemic is where the cracks in the system are, whether it be in communities that don't speak English as a first language, whether it be in Aboriginal communities, whether it be in aged care, and fix those up for next time. And in fact, next Monday on CoronaCast, we're going to be talking about how you prevent pandemics in the first place. 
So in summary, the solution in aged care is a longer-term solution to fix up the system so it's more robust next time. You mentioned Aboriginal communities there, and it's a slightly different situation, but our colleague Lauren Roberts, who used to work in the Science Unit and now is in the Northern Territory as a health reporter, was reporting that the NT has twice the hospitalisation rate in COVID that New South Wales had at the height of its peak. Yeah, and I think it just describes the vulnerable population in the Northern Territory. It's the most likely explanation. Yeah, so one of the solutions that has been put forward by some people is that we should be getting booster doses more regularly. We've seen other countries doing things like that. Israel is the famous example. They've given fourth doses out. But then we've heard the chief of the Doherty Institute saying that that's not a viable strategy. Where is the balance of evidence falling at the moment? Well, I think first things first, people need their third doses and uh, I need to get them. If you haven't got them, you need to get it. And just to remind you, if you've had Astra, you need to get Pfizer or Moderna. If you have Pfizer, ideally you should get Moderna. If you have Moderna, you get Moderna. I mean, that seems to be the pattern of uh, boosters that you should be getting. Now, fourth doses, Atagi has already approved a fourth dose for people who are immunocompromised. They've kind of used odd language here. If you're, an immuno, if you're an immunocompromised person, you've had three primary doses of a COVID-19 vaccine, then you're recommended to have a booster dose in line with the timing of the general population, which means three months after your third dose. Interestingly, in doing talk back in Western Australia, people are saying the immunocompromised people are phoning in saying, well, I'm qualified for it but I'm not getting it. And GPs and pharmacists are refusing. So we'd like to hear from you, actually, if you've been refused a fourth dose and you're immunocompromised because ATAGI has approved it. And the question is, what is the barrier there? So coming to Sharon Lewin's point about boosters every six months not being a viable strategy, I mean, this goes back to the original Doherty advice which and their modelling, which is that vaccination alone will not control this pandemic. And you could be chasing your tail here. And it's interesting that not many countries, if any, have followed the population-based approach of fourth doses in Israel. And remember, one reason that Israel follows that policy is that they have not been good on test, trace, isolate and quarantine. And they've not been good at public health and social measures. And they have used vaccination as their primary control strategy. So don't get confused by Israel. In some senses, their vaccination strategy is a reflection of their failure in their broader policy on controlling the, the pandemic. And I think that's probably what Sharon was alluding to, is that we need a broader set of controls here. And uh, we can't be going out every five minutes and having a new booster. Right. And I thought that maybe that we would get another booster in maybe a year's time, but it would be an updated one. It would protect against whatever variant was circulating at that time, a bit like how we have an updated flu shot each year, that it's not really a, a booster. It's like a, it's like a, uh, what's it, like a software re a software reinstall. But you're probably not going to get to that point until the, until low-income countries are well immunised and you've got fewer variants emerging. As long as you've got a high flow-through of new variants, then it's going to be very hard to come up with a vaccine that's going to cover you. Um, although people are researching, and we've spoken about this before, vaccines that would cover a broad range of variants and getting a technology that would work for that, but that's yet to be shown. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's CoronaCast. We're going to be answering lots of your questions, though, in Friday's episode. So if you've got questions, head to abc.net.au slash coronacast and leave them there. And again, if you're immunocompromised and haven't been able to get a fourth dose, uh, let us know. Yeah, go to the same place. We'll see you on Friday. See you then. <laughs>